The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Good evening, Tom. Fine, thank you. It's good to see you. You too. Blessed Holy Week to you. Well, I wish you the same. We've got the Triduum coming up, and of course, the, uh, the beautiful Easter Sunday, most most important feast of the church year. That's right. So, we've got to prepare for that. All right. Well, Father, I thought we could start with a question concerning a correlation between Vatican I and Vatican II. This viewer says that I, he has been doing some study on the Church and the errors of Vatican II. I'm starting to see a correlation between Vatican II and its fruits and what was taught at Vatican I. In particular, what is the nature of the papacy and papal infa infallibility? Do you think that Vatican II is directly related to Vatican I in that it is a sort of counter to Vatican I and its teachings? I ask this because it seems that the Council of Trent, though refuting Protestantism, did not eliminate it from the world. In fact, it spread more throughout the world. Also, in the same way, Vatican I, though setting down the teaching concerning the papacy, did not rid the world of those who opposed it, but rather seemed to fuel their fires to continue in their opposition to it. Well, in the first place, uh, Vatican II was a direct negation of Vatican I. It was actually the anti-Vatican I, okay? It was meant to be a, re a rejection of the syllabus. It was meant to, to be um, a rejection of the whole idea, in fact, that uh, the use of reason uh, is compatible with the, with the faith, and we can know even the existence of God by the use of reason. Uh, Vatican II, as you know, was the, the great watershed of the modernists, okay? So uh, there's a reason why uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, who went on to become Benedict XVI, said that Vatican II was the French Revolution in the Church, okay? Uh, the French Revolution, with its slogan, uh, uh, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, you know, this, this is what actually triumphed in Vatican II, not the Catholic faith. So, um, it was, in fact, a revolution, and it was a revolution against everything the Church had pronounced, and not only Vatican I, but against the Council of Trent as well. So, as this uh, writer mentions, yes, uh, Vatican II was the modernist um, way of actually rejecting Vatican I and uh, all that it stood for. And uh, also, when he mentions that uh, the pronouncement of the faith very clearly at Vatican I, uh, in sight of the enemies of the faith, and uh, also at the Council of Trent, that the Council of Trent, uh, he indicates or kind of implies that that precipitated a flurry of activity and a spread of Protestantism. I think that's a post-hoc error there, because the fact that Protestantism spread was not because of the Council of Trent. In fact, um, 
the, uh, the Council of Trent was meant to shore up the faith of Catholics, okay, the Catholic people, and that it did, okay. Um, the fact that Protestantism had taken on a malevolent life of its own by falsifying the very nature of faith uh, was not surprising. It, it, it was uh, easy to market Protestantism because it's easy to market the idea that we can be saved without having to follow the commandments. That we can be saved by simply making an act of faith, in other words, expressing our confidence that Christ has died for our sins, that uh, because of our confidence in his sacrifice, that our sins don't count anymore. Need not past, not present, not future sins, right? That we are saved. I mean, let's face it, uh, that's a very attractive idea. It's uh, every bit as attractive as it is false, right? So um, the fact that we say that this is false and this is a grave error uh, does not cause it to spread, okay? Uh, the fact is, uh, unfortunately, that human nature being what it is, it has more attraction to darkness than to light, to error than to truth. And that is why Protestantism spread the way it did. Um, but as, as far as Vatican I, there was a lot of opposition to Vatican I, but the opposition came from the enemies of the Church also. Um, in fact, you saw the Masons conjure up a revolution under Garibaldi to uh, lay siege to Rome, forcibly terminate the sessions of the First Vatican Council, uh, which, uh, by the way, the First Vatican Council was never actually terminated by the Church. Uh, so that it was never actually closed. Technically speaking, the First Vatican Council is still open. This is one of the objections that some of the cardinals made when John XXIII suggested a Vatican II. He said, we can't have a Vatican II because we never finished Vatican I. Um, of course, John XXIII ignored what they said and just steamrolled ahead anyway because his Vatican II was not meant to be a continuation of Vatican I. It was meant to be the antithesis of Vatican I and, the, uh, as I said, the rejection of Vatican I. Um, so the fact that this incited the enemies of the Church uh, to redouble their efforts, again, uh, you know, the implication that um, the clearest statement of truth in Vatican I somehow uh, provoked a reaction uh, does in no way take away from the importance of stating the truth. I mean, one might say that our Lord's statements to the Pharisees and Sadducees provoked them to uh, seek his death. And when one could make an argument, yes, um, our Lord our Lord did not back down. When, when he was confronted by the crowds that had eaten the miraculous bread and fishes in the wilderness, and the next day they found him in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he told them, uh, I will give you my flesh to eat and my blood to drink, uh, it is a fact that many of these people walked away. Most, probably most of them, so much that our Lord even asked the apostles if they wanted to walk away. One might blame our Lord for saying this and chasing all those people off, right? But uh, I don't think any, anyone would be so audacious as to say, well, uh, Christ should have maybe used a different form of expression, maybe not been so confrontational, um, maybe not required such a stretch of faith on their part. In other words, the fact that our Lord didn't run after them and say, come on, you got me wrong, I didn't mean it that way. Uh, one could, I suppose, blame our Lord in the context of today's political correctness for not being politically correct. 
Um, but um, actually, he was being the way, the truth, and the life when he said the truth. And people had to make, it, had to make the choice between truth and, and falsehood, between faith and rejection of him. And, they did, and he did reject him. The fact that they had the rejection, though, the fact that they rejected him was not because of the truth he spoke, but because they were offered the grace to believe, and they rejected that grace. And so it will always be in the world. When you tell the truth, there will always be those who uh, will hate the truth and turn their backs on it, and then uh, go off and uh, attack it. Mm -hmm. So it um, certainly isn't going to stop us from telling the truth. It didn't stop our Lord, it didn't stop the Church at the Council of Trent, and it didn't stop, stop the Church at the Vatican I either. Mm-hmm. at the First Vatican Council. So uh, the church is the true church of Christ, so it will speak as he did. And he speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So Yeah. And you know, Father, our Lord said that he came to set the son against his father, mm-hmm. the, the daughter against her mother, and so on. And this seems to be a, uh, a, a man- manifestation of that, where if uh, if... If this is true, you know, it seems to be that, you know, when the church makes a, a, an infallible pronouncement that, that defines dogmatically uh, certain truths, that there is a kind of uh, a resistance, a blowback from that. And I would say that that's, that's good. I mean, this is exactly what our Lord said. I mean, he came to set to, uh, I mean, not that that was his goal, but that was going to be, that's the natural result mm-hmm. of establishing uh, infallible truths is that there's going to be this this contention. Sure. So. What did our Lord tell the apostles? I mean, the, the job description he gave them was not um, glowing. It was they will if they have hated me, they will hate you also. Okay. Uh, and he told them, you know, they will bring you up in charges. They will uh, uh, try you. They will condemn you, right? and so on. Um, and all for telling the truth. So we can't be uh, afraid of this. We can't even be surprised by the reaction of, uh, of some people mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to the truth. This is the same reaction they had to our Lord long ago. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, next question then, Father. This viewer says that he enjoys the conversations. There's great chemistry on the show, and he's receiving a lot of insight about true Catholicism. And his question is, besides the confirmation that the apostles could forgive sins, and that Peter was singled out to feed our Lord's sheep, what other teachings does the traditional Catholic Church know about that Christ proclaimed during the 40 days prior to his ascension? Well, what we know is what we see in Catholic tradition. I mean, you see uh, from the earliest days the practices of the Church. And you see that this is what our Lord gave the apostles during that time. I mean, the Mass and the sacraments. When you, when you read the Acts of the Apostles' time, you see the apostles take aside uh, men who they found worthy, and by the laying out of hands, by the imposition of hands, and prayer to the Holy Ghost, they ordained them. And so they, they gave to them the spiritual powers that Christ himself had given to his apostles. When at his ascension, he said, Going therefore, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, that statement of our Lord, especially the last one, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, certainly implies that our Lord gave them a body of commands that they were to go out and they were to teach others. When we find them ordaining others who are to come after them, 
generation after them, we find that they don't just make this up. They didn't just get together and say, well, what do we do next? Our Lord had told them what they were to do. When our Lord, after the end of the 40 days, uh, ascended into heaven with the command to go and basically conquer the, the earth for, uh, for heaven, right? Conquer souls for heaven. In uh, all the nations of the world, he had instructed them and prepared them for that moment and given them the knowledge of what they needed. So much so that our Lord even told them that when he sent the Holy Ghost to them, the Holy Ghost would not have to invent or make up anything new, but the mission of the Holy Ghost was to remind them of the things that Christ himself had told them. That was the mission of the Holy Ghost. Not new doctrine, but to remind them of what Christ himself had already given them. So uh, we see when the apostles came uh, forth from the upper room on Pentecost Sunday, uh, they went about uh, doing what Christ commanded. And we see them offering Mass, as we know. Uh, we see them um, consecrating the body and blood of Christ at, uh, at what we now call the Mass. Okay, We see them uh, baptizing, we see them confirming, we see them ordaining, we see them doing all these things. And Christ had taught them that during those 40 days. The Holy Ghost just wasn't inspired to do something new. Um, you know, we see this already in the first chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. So, I mean, where would, where would Peter know that it was necessary to replace Judas? that he would stand up in front of all the apostles and say, now we must replace Judas. I mean, was he inspired by the Holy Ghost to do that? Yes. But had our Lord given him that knowledge? Yes, evidently. And uh, you see the Holy Ghost guiding St. Peter at the very beginning because you find him uh, even in uh, chapter 4 of the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, and, and by the way, the, the decision to replace Judas, or to fill the empty spot of Judas, came before Pentecost Sunday. It was already when the apostles were gathered there, as our Lord sent them, had sent them back to Jerusalem to wait. It was already uh, in the very first chapter of, uh, of the Acts of the Apostles that St. Peter spoke. And it was in the second chapter that uh, we read about the Holy Ghost coming on Pentecost Sunday. So the decision to fill the place of Judas actually preceded the coming of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost Sunday. Peter knew this. He was inspired to do this. And so the chapter uh, that came later, when um, it was a decision to create the deacons, the office of deacon, to serve the tables, to serve the poor, to take care of the temporal goods that came to the church for the sake of, the, of taking care of the poor and the sick. Um, that matter of making seven men deacons, Peter said that. Peter said, we must do this. He knew this. How did he know this? The Holy Ghost inspired him. Because Christ himself, during those 40 days, had made it clear that Peter was the one who was to make these decisions. And later on, when Ananias and Sapphira, I, mean, I think this is in chapter 5 of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, made a donation of property to the church and then reneged and tried to lie and conceal that the donation they'd made they were actually now taking back. It was Peter who pronounced the judgment of the Holy Ghost against them and their lie and deceit. 
So the the point is, we know that this is all what ha- this is what happened immediately following our Lord's ascension, and um, this was coming directly from that teaching of our Lord during those forty days. The apostles came away from those forty days well equipped and knowing exactly what it is that our Lord wanted them to do in terms of the fundamental principles of the church, her worship, her sacraments, part of her worship, what it was necessary, what was necessary to sanctify souls, what was necessary to justify souls from sin. As our Lord, I mean, the very first day of our Lord's resurrection, the first of those 40 days, our Lord appeared to the apostles and said, going, therefore, Forgive sins. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. It's the first lesson our Lord gave them, the very night of the resurrection. So we can understand what came afterwards during those 40 days of our Lord's commands to them. So um, in answer, I I hope, to the question, we can discern, discern the great apostolic traditions of the church as having come from those 40 days. Our Lord gave to the apostles what we now know as the apostolic traditions, the practices of the apostles. Uh, During those early days that we read about in the Acts of the Apostles, this is what our Lord gave them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Father, some time ago on the program, we discussed a question concerning uh, first cousin marriage and if it would ever be possible for the church to grant a dispensation for that. And you said, I believe, that you were unaware of any circumstances where the church did that. And uh, that viewer sent a follow-up question and said that one notable example of first cousins marrying in the Catholic Church is that of Louis Fourteenth of okay. France and Maria Teresa of Spain. Yeah. And I was under the impression, he says, that there were quite a few more occasions of this happening, but perhaps I was mistaken. At one point, first cousin marriage was quite common among Protestants of British background in England and the United States. Uh, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were first cousins, Charles Darwin and his wife, Edgar Allan Poe and his wife. If the church would never grant a dispensation, if this is truly impossible, then of course we would never make any attempt to get married. But he did offer those those examples, Father. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, even in, in responding to that question, I had something in the back of my mind, and I was quite faking out. And so that might be exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. But uh, I understand among Muslims it's very common, too. This is what I've, I've heard or read, that uh, marriage within the, that close degree of relationship is not only unusual, but it's fairly common. Um, so uh, could the church grant that dispensation? Well, if in fact she has done so, then obviously she could. Um, and I'm glad this, this, reader, this uh, listener wrote in here because I have not gotten to that. Um, but I intended to. And now that he's given us some uh, you know, more to ponder there, I, 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 I intend to get back to him on that. Sounds good. Okay, Father, a question concerning... I'll tell you, it's a great, yeah, I'm sure it's a great rarity there. Yeah. How would, how would something like that work today, though, with the current state of the church? How would one get a dispensation in today's world? From the moderns? Modernists? Well, how would that work? I mean, if... Well, you couldn't go to the moderns for a dispensation. They're dispensing you for the faith. <laughs> So, I mean, (laughs) that doesn't work. Um, No, you you would never go to them. You go to them for a dispensation of anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that any tradition, no traditional bishop uh, I would recognize as a traditional bishop would arrogate to himself the authority to grant such a thing. Anyway, 
Okay. And it would be a matter of arrogating the authority to oneself because they don't have authority decisions like that. Okay, fair enough. All right, a question concerning consecration, Father. Shouldn't conversion come before consecration? I've read that even non-Catholics can consecrate themselves to Mary or the Sacred Heart of Jesus, but you have said that the Church always taught, as in the took consecration of non-Catholics, that it was forbidden. Also, if only Catholics can be consecrated, how can the people of Russia be consecrated if most are not yet Catholic? I think this person is conflating the idea of consecrating bishops with making a personal consecration to Our Lady and drawing some kind of connection between the consecration, the took consecration of bishops, mm -hmm. of non-Catholics. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about um, giving the fullness of the sacrament of holy orders to someone outside the church. That's a very different thing from an individual consecrating oneself personally to the Blessed Mother and her care and her service. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, 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 do, do you get that impression mm -hmm. that we're mm -hmm. off yeah. somewhere? So it is possible for a non—it is possible for a non-Catholic to consecrate themselves to the Immaculate Heart or the Sacred Heart. If a non-Catholic has a devotion um, to the <laughs> Sacred Heart, Immaculate Heart, I think you'd have to consider any such consecration to be a step toward conversion. Mm -hmm. Okay, it would be nonsensical and antithetical to the very nature of the consecration to make such an act of consecration to the Immaculate Heart, the Sacred Heart, uh, without the uh, at least an implicit notion of converting to the Catholic faith. Because mm -hmm. these are very, very Catholic devotions in their essence, you know. Uh, they are, I used the word antithetical before, they're, they're completely antithetical to Protestantism, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I always think of something like that. If a Protestant has devotion to our Blessed Lady, I would consider that to be a result of graces obtained by our Blessed Mother's prayers for that individual to bring that person to conversion to the true faith, the Catholic faith. If a Protestant, or anyone for that matter, had a devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and a true devotion to the true Sacred Heart of Jesus, let's put it that way, I would consider that to be a, a grace that was obtained for that soul, and that the soul is cooperating with. The ultimate objective of that grace is the conversion of that soul to the faith. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's the only thing that would make any sense of that consecration. Otherwise, it, it would have to be false. Uh, right. So, um, but it has nothing to do with consecrating a bishop. You know, a non-Catholic is a bishop. Right. Okay. Uh, all right, then, Father, uh, we recently did a, uh, a segment concerning hermeticism on mm -hmm. the program. We received a couple follow-up questions to that, and uh, they may be a bit esoteric but perhaps we could get through these uh real quick here father um the first one here we can try. <laughs> we can try uh he says father it seems as though modernism and hermeticism have been intertwined for a long time i heard that the modernist cardinal rampola was a member of the ordo templi orientis i also understand that john the 23rd was a student of rudolf steiner's occult philosophy of <clears throat> anthroposophy it is true that at the turn of the 20th century, spiritism was very popular. 
and almost anyone who wasn't firmly rooted in the true faith might pursue an interest in it. However, in hindsight, it seems that there is some intrinsic connection between modernism and the occult, that a modernism would develop, a modernist would develop a proclivity for the occult, not merely because it is, quote, in the air, but just because he is a modernist. Do you agree? I agree. Okay. I agree that modernism tends toward the occult anyway. I mean, as soon as you say that faith is an experience, and uh, that, uh, as the modernists say, Pope St. Pius X explains this, it is a cyclical. That faith experience then, okay, determines one's belief, that uh, that, that belief goes through various stages, finally uh, morphing in a kind of statement of dogma, which then has to be scrapped to be constantly changed to keep up with the evolving faith experience right? as it goes down to the person's own life and it, that goes down through the generations after him too the faith experience I mean this, this means that what a person experiences as the divine within himself is his God essentially the modernist refers to the divine it, it doesn't you know the, Modernisms can use the word God, they can use any term they want for God, but actually they're thinking of this divine something out there, something larger than us, greater than us, something transcendent, something beyond us. But the modernist teaches us to look within ourselves to find that. And that is manifesting itself within us and manifesting itself through us, okay? St. Pius X raised the question, he said, look, Ask the modernist, is this experience of something divine a matter of channeling, he doesn't use the word channeling, but something outside of you that really exists outside of you, or is it something that is within you, that is you yourself, actually? Is the divine being, as it were, within you? Are you it? You know? He said the modernist has a hard time distinguishing that. And so you can see how something like that that defines a matter of faith Faith experiencing this divine something within oneself, how easily this could lead to the occult. I mean, the whole idea of Satanism, right, is to uh, get in touch with this this power, this this uh, this superhuman power, and to to be able to share in this power, right? To receive this power, it's all about power. This, even Satanist high priests tell you that this is how they got involved, and this is how they got other people involved with the promise of power. Okay, and uh, so this is all about worship of self, anyway. Okay, but at least Satanists look beyond themselves, supposedly, if they're real, really Satanists, not these fake Satanists like Levey and so on, who say that Satan is just a symbol and we're symbolizing something within ourselves. Um, our antinomianism and our rebellion and our, our, our willfulness, you know, to create ourselves and all the rest and serve ourselves. And I mean, this is all about oneself. This is, this is truly a satanic mindset, right? Mm -hmm. The Wiccans, on the other hand, say there is no Satan. So they are much more into this idea of the divine within themselves. I mean, <clears throat> the Satanists at least look to receive power from some other entity, you know, like some satanic being outside themselves, if they really do believe in this uh, satanic figure. 
The Wiccans actually uh, claim that they are going to bring this power within themselves. In a sense, they are even worse than the Satanists, in a sense, because they look within themselves for this divine, divine being, you know. Um, but in any case, Tom, uh, modernism caters to this whole mentality of looking for the divine within, okay? That's where you experience the divine. And whether you draw the line uh, between, uh, between the idea of a divine being outside of you that you're experiencing or the divine being that is no more than within you, and it is simply within you, there's nothing else you know, beyond you that is divine, but you're experiencing the divine, your divine self, as it were. Uh, this is all a fertile ground for the occult. Mm -hmm. and, and Father, if I'm if I'm understanding correctly here, the the gist of his of his question seems to me that uh, uh, an example of this would be how the modernists changed the concept of the Holy Ghost into the Holy Spirit, and then pretty much did away with the Holy. And now it's just the Spirit. Mm. And so, with modernism, you have just quote the Spirit mm. now. And if you just have the Spirit, um, you don't have this absolute, firm, rigid. Uh, to use the term, truth of the Holy Ghost in this this firm concept. Now we just have this kind of vague, ambiguous spirit, right. and that's that's just the perfect, like you said, that's fertile reading ground. That that's and all of the Pentecostalism and Charismatic movement. They're all they're all experiencing the spirit. They say, which is pure modernism again. And Francis is very big on this. And in fact, our writer here was the one who who was. I think talking about the idea of Francis saying God cannot be God without man, mm -hmm. okay? And that's what got us into this discussion. Yeah. It's kind of a, a cultic uh, mentality. Yeah, exactly. It leads perfectly into all that. Uh, occultism, uh, idolatry, the sermonticism that, that he talks about, it, it logically uh, descends into all of that. But okay, Father, he has a second follow-up question here, if you agree with the first one, which you said you did. Oh. So we continue. In the encyclical Pascendi, Pope St. Pius X says that the modernist as a philosopher is an agnostic. This puzzled me for some time as I first began to entertain the possibility of some connection between modernism and the hermetic tradition. How could the agnosticism of the modernist coexist with magical Gnosticism in the same person? But St. Pius also emphasizes that the modernist wears various masks and manifests a sort of split personality. Moreover, a Gnostic magician supposes that there is something special about him, such that he is worthy or capable to receive hidden knowledge of God. But for others who are not like himself, they cannot know or understand. So it seems that the agnosticism of the modernist could be duplicitous. Idealist agnosticism is the philosophy that he intends for mass consumption, whereas he himself reserves a Gnostic esoteric hermetic teaching for himself and his friends. Did St. Pius ever talk about something like this? And if not, why do you think he didn't? Well, I think he did, but I don't think he talked about them in the same terms, or maybe not getting into quite some particular, particularities, as it were. But, you know, what the gentleman is saying here is, is, is interesting, and you think it through, because when St. Pius X wrote his encyclical against the errors of the modernists, condemning the errors of the modernists, he said that there were two philosophical ideas at the root of modernism, Okay. And one of them was agnosticism, and the other is phenomenalism. Um, and the, the agnosticism had the idea, we can't really know truths about God. Okay? But by the power of reason. 
The power of reason does not enable us to know the truth about God. This is a direct denial of the, again, the Church's decrees at Vatican I about the power of reason to know about God and his attributes, the existence of God and his attributes. Um, <clears throat> the modernist says, no, cuts that off. We can't know that by the power of reason. Phenomenalism as a, uh, also a philosophical principle, if you want to call it that, says we can't even know the truths about this world. So Agnostic says we can't know the truth about the next world. We can't know the truth about this world. Because all we have is the appearances of things. We can't get to the essences of things. Our intellects are not able to penetrate beyond the mere appearances of things. Okay? So where does that leave the human intellect? Right? Where does that leave the fact that God created us in his own image and likeness? If God created us in his image and likeness, as he did, as sacred scripture tells us, he created us in his image and likeness of an immortal soul which had the power to know truth and love goodness and to enjoy beauty, what is beautiful. And so the idea that we can know truth, love goodness, and enjoy beautiful, what is beautiful, uh, if you cut that off, especially at the root, the connection between the human intellect and truth, then we just wanders. And all we have is our own experience, and we all become existentialists. Each one of us has his own experience of the phenomenon around him. Each one of us kind of creates his own little world around himself, of which he personally is his own personal God. And in his own little world, with his own little experience, um, he actually defines what is good or, or bad according to whether it makes him happy or not, what is true or false, whether he agrees with it or not. Okay? And so <clears throat> this is the absolute fragmentation of the human race into these little little uh, egocentric spheres, you might say. And um, this is what existentialism does. Um, it's, again, it, it all brings, it all reduces our existence to our own personal experience, okay? Including the experience of the divine and faith. This is, again, quintessential modernism. The reason why he, he asked this question, though, is he asking, well, if you have the modernist as an agnostic philosophically, then how can you have him going for Gnosticism? I mean, you have agnosticism and you have Gnosticism going together. How does it work? Well, it actually works very simply. And that is, remember, the, the, the Gnostics <coughs> thought they had a secret knowledge. The secret knowledge was simply that, that we are God. That's what Gnosticism has as its central point. We, individually, personally, we are God. Okay? Now, the agnostic, the, the, the one who has this, this philosophical idea of agnosticism at the root of modernism, has cut himself off from knowledge of a true God outside of himself. Gnosticism is basically all that's left to him. Experiencing God within him is really all that he's got left. He rejects the knowledge of the true God, even the power, the, the knowledge that reason itself or intellect itself can give, he rejects that. He says it's impossible. So as an agnostic now, he's rejected the rational knowledge of the true God. So all he has left now is to find God within him. And this is his Gnosticism. He is God. You see, so these are not 
and antithetical ideas, I keep, keep returning to that word again, these ideas are not opposed to each other. Philosophical agnosticism and hermetic Gnosticism, they actually go very much hand in hand. One is the necessary consequence of the other. Reject a knowledge of the true God, and where do you have to find God? You have to find him within. Mm-hmm. That's the Gnostic teaching. Father, I think you, you talked about something similar in a, in a sermon that you recently gave where you discussed how, um, how reason is defined as the ability to know things and their causes mm-hmm. and how there are so many in the world today who will say we can, uh, th- that there's no cause mm-hmm. of the universe. It's it just simply uh, the Big Bang happened, the universe came from nothing. And and you you explained how how this is this is the most uh, irrational thing possible because you know people can one could argue certain aspects and, and be uh, unreasonable and certain things you know not not draw the right connection between a, a certain specific thing and its cause but to just say everything the entire universe there was no cause for that that is that's the very definition of uh, that's, that's the epitome of of, of irration, that, irrationality. That is the ultimate manifestation of anti-rationality. Not just irrationality. It's not just non-rational. That's anti-rational. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's why we have these uh, this existentialism run wild in our society today, where we have you know you you said before how you know the the definition of of insanity is being out of touch with reality, and that's exactly what existentialism reality. says. And we have that running rampant in our society today. Where I think this this idea is what is on political correctness, mm-hmm. where we our society tries to pretend that there is no definite truth, that everything is is subjective. And you know, you see that now, and just how how silly it is, where we go to such great enormous lengths to not offend anyone and try and remain neutral, and it's just an, impossible. Well, I mean, it's it's led to the insanity of transgenderism and all the rest. I mean, it, it's like the whole world is becoming a madhouse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you go, you go to the carnival and you see these, these house of mirrors where everything is distorted and twisted and you, know, you don't know what is real and what is not. Mm-hmm. It's like the whole world has become this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like be- becoming one huge asylum. And the, 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 the most radical uh, of the insane are the ones who are running the show. Yeah. Um, they're, they're the ones who seem to have the power right mm-hmm. now. So this gets back to what uh, Sister Lucia said. Uh, well, said Our Lady said, Our Blessed Mother said in Fatima, that there would be a diabolical uh, disorientation in the world. And that is a, an excellent description of an insane asylum, a diabolical disorientation. Um, but that's exactly, that's how I see it anyway, Tom. I don't know that everybody would agree with me, probably not. <laughs> but... You know, the idea of de-rationalizing human beings and taking intellect away and the connection, the the fact that we're created for truth, ultimately for God, was truth. To take that away um, basically um, leaves us literally insane, okay, out of touch with reality. And the reason why they want to do that is because they want to be their own gods and they want to be able to, they want to be free to create their own reality, which is the essence of existentialism. But modernism works perfectly with existentialism. It is, it is, um, it is actually the, the, the inevitable result of existentialist thinking. 
that we think that the world around us is the, a world of our own creation from our own experience. But what could be more existentialist than saying even God himself, even the divine, is, is not just the cause or the principle of our experience, but ultimately he becomes the creature. We've created him. We've created by our experience of the divine, we're creating God. Terre de Chardin, the coalescence of the minds, you know, into this, basically growing into God, like the, the, the cosmic Christ. Terre de Chardin, the modernist uh, to the nth degree. Francis, God cannot be God without man. How else can you understand that statement? It's nonsensical uh, without putting it in, in this context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, in any case, it's, uh, it, it, all is, it all leads to the occult. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is, it is a, a, you know, a preparation of the, of the mind to accept the Antichrist. Yeah. All right, well, Father, he says, thanks again for answering my questions. I hope that they're not too weird or annoying. <laughs> well, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who find them both weird and annoying, but... <laughs> I don't find them so. I, I, I think that they uh, show a certain insight into into the, the nature of these things. So I hope my answers aren't too weird or annoying. <laughs> I don't think so, Father. Oh, thank you, Tom. Yeah, no problem. Well, you. I think uh, I think with that, Father, we'll let you go. I know you've got a busy schedule ahead of you for the rest of a full week. So. Well, we have the sacred room coming up, and I wish all of our listeners and viewers, a very blessed Easter, uh, blessed Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and of course Easter Sunday, and blessed Easter Tide. Uh, you know, I'll be going with a number of our students to Rome. This is their class trip. So we'll be, uh, you know, praying for a lot of people over there, and among those we'll be praying for, whenever we go into a, a church over there, uh, we realize that no matter what the Nova Serta has done to these splendid sanctuaries, uh, they are just occupiers, okay? So uh, we, we always go in and we always pray, okay? And uh, we pray for our loved ones back home. And I'll be remembering the uh, supporters of what Catholics believe also there. Um, and um, it's, it's such a shame that we... We, we don't have mass in those churches. We, we won't, actually. Uh, it's too risky to find some overzealous Novus Ordo sacristan who will interrupt the mass uh, because it's the traditional mass. And I don't want to scandalize the children. So we actually do not have the mass. We have the daily mass, there, but we don't say it within the churches over there. Uh, they've been defiled by the Novus Ordo. Um, but there are certain things that are just holy, like the relics of the saints that are there. Uh, they, they, there's, there's no wickedness of the modernists that has the power to overcome the holiness that is there. Um, uh, in in the, uh, the, you know, just the mortal, even the, the mortal remains of the martyrs and their relics and, and so many of the holy saints there. Um, but, you know, when we go back to the time of the Apostles, we find long before there were any churches in Rome, the Apostles, notably Peter, offered Mass in private homes, a week from 
this very day, the students and I will be standing in the, the hall of the Senator Pudens, where St. Peter preached the gospel in Rome and uh, where he offered Mass in the private home of this Roman senator who not only died, uh, lived and died faithful to Christ, but his wife and his children and his grandchildren. And they even provided in their family line martyrs for the faith. Um, so it's, a, it's quite a, a thought to realize just a week from today we'll be standing there in the very place that St. Peter preached the gospel in Rome and where St. Mark wrote down the words of Peter's preaching and given us the gospel according to St. Mark right now. Um, the, um, the first masses offered by the apostles were not offered in churches, nor were they offered in the catacombs. They were offered in the private homes of, of the faithful. And so um, that is what we will be having to do now, because in the face of modernism, it's almost impossible to do otherwise. Yeah. Um, so we thank God we can. Well, that sounds great. Thank you, Father. Thank you for being here tonight. You're welcome, Tom. I do remind people about the men's retreat starting on June 20th mm -hmm. and the women's retreat on June 13th and about the summer camp uh, starting um, mid-July here in Cincinnati for the boys and a little later on for the girls. I remind them all of that, of those things, because we want to invite them to take part, mm -hmm. encourage them to take part in these things. So, Tom, God bless you and your family and, of course, all of our what Catholics believe subscribers and those we hope to be subscribers. <laughs> Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.